family and good morning friends. How are we this morning? All full of cheer and energy and um, ready to go. I think it's going to rain this afternoon, isn't it? My garden needs some more water, not. Anyway, well, let's open to the uh, final passage in Matthew's Gospel, uh, perhaps one of the most well-known sections that's often quoted um, in, uh, in church mission statements, etc., Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, if you have been to a concert, um, you'll know that there are many different ways to end a musical item. Uh, There are some songs or symphonies that end with a particularly loud series of explosions or pyrotechnics or bangs, and Pink Floyd comes to mind. I saw them in the 1980s, and I've never seen so much smoke and all sorts of action, and it was a very dramatic end. Um, There are some composers that come to mind who um, uh, really clearly let you know that the end of their piece of music is coming to an end. Um, Beethoven comes to mind. The chords and the notes come crashing and smashing to a crescendo that leave just enough room for one more note. Uh, 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 And it just keeps kind of going and eventually explodes and and he ends um, as he squeezes out his last note. Dire Straits used to... I'm giving away my age and my, vet, my kind of vintage here, aren't I? Dire Straits used to always impress me because they would have a concert filled with driving um, and very good quality electric guitar, but they'd always end with this lilting Scottish tune called Going Home. And uh, it was a really kind of uh, warm ca- campfire bagpipe imagery way to end their concerts. Um, the best musical theatre you go to ends with the finale when they come and they they package together all of the best parts of the melodies and the tunes and the songs and wrap it all up and you kind of go out and and that's that's one of the the good ways that musicals end. Um, One of my favourites is the way Jackson Brown ends a concert because the way he ends his concert is he sings The Stranger and then Stay. And I don't know if anyone else has seen him, but um, when he sings his... He gets to Stay, um, which is basically repeats this line, I won't you stay just a little bit longer... And he sits on one of the black boxes with, and, with his guitar and sings while the roadies all climb down the staging and walk all over the, the, the stage and pack it up and carry all the boxes off. And so it's just a, at the end, it just finishes with him just there and one spotlight on him and it's kind of a nice way to, to end. Um, church services too end. I don't know if, you can, if you're old enough to remember, church services used to always end with... A song. Um, when I was younger, like the Lord bless you and keep you, or remember now unto him, and you'd hold hands. Now, and did we hold, you're probably not allowed to hold hands these days, probably get COVID or something. But, um, and, and we'd sing now unto him who's able to keep you from falling, and, and on that would go. Um, well, how does Matthew end his 28 chapter long gospel account 
of the life and ministry of Jesus. How does our journey as a church for the, that's been in Matthew for just about all of the last two years, how does it end? Is it a loud bang? Is it a long theological treatise? Is it, is it a doxology? Does Matthew end where he started? Well, let's take a look. And the first thing that you will notice from the reading that we've just had is it's only five verses short. So we're not going to get a prolonged theological treatise. You can cancel that out. But having said that, and getting growing accustomed to Matthew's style and message, um, it's got a full meaning here that links back to the beginning. And the first thing that we note is that the final scene here is set where? On a mountain. <clears throat> As we've seen all the way through, Matthew uses mountains at various crucial points. Matthew sets lots of those significant scenes on top of mountains. The temptation scenes in chapter 4, the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mountain, the final discourse on the Mount of Olives, and the transfiguration where Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. Remember Jesus turned white and all of a sudden, James and, Peter and James and John saw him there meeting with Mo, Moses and Elijah. This is how Matthew described the transfiguration in Matthew 17. After six da days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So it's important that we should recall that Moses and Elijah also both met with God on a mountain. So not only did they meet with Jesus, the Son of God, on a mountain here in this scene in the Transfiguration, but they'd also, in their own ministry, earthly ministries, met with God on a mountain. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, as Exodus 19 says, then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And dot, dot, dot. And of course, God instructed Moses about the Ten Commandments, the foundation of Christian Judeo life, faith and practice. Moses met with God on a mountain. And Elijah's encounter too was on a mountain. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord said, Go out... And stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Some of you know the story. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. So Elijah met God on the mountain in his seminal moment too. Mountains. In this final scene, our parting scene, the end of Matthew, we're on a mountain. You can see the parallels that Matthew's already established, particularly of Jesus' place among this pantheon of greats. Those who met with God on mountains, those who came now to confer with Jesus who is God. It all happened on a mountain, which was fitting. In fact, how could it not? How could this scene not be set on a mountain? 
But while Moses and Elijah appropriately met with Jesus on a mountain, have a look at the reaction of some of Jesus' followers in this scene. Verses 16 and 17 said, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The word that the NIV has translated doubted can also be translated as hesitated. We can't be clear about Matthew's intention here. Did they doubt or hesitate if Jesus was truly real and healed and resurrected or if, in fact, it was really him? We don't know. But Matthew notes enough to write it down that there is a definite pause, a, a definite hesitation from some of them. And then they did what the women did when they realised who this person truly was and really was. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. That's what the women did in verse 9. Just as the women had fallen to their knees and worshipped Jesus, so too will now the majority of the 11 disciples. The word that Matthew uses here for worship has been used in previous occasions throughout his gospel. On each occasion, a person expresses their reverence and elevates Jesus above themselves for who he is and what he has done. For example, in Matthew 8, 8 2, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He knelt. Or in Matthew 9, 18, while he was saying this, the synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her. She will live. He knelt before Jesus. Or in Matthew 14, there's plenty of others. Matthew 14, 32, then when Jesus walked on water, the response from the fo his followers, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. The same word worship there is knelt in those other passages. They lowered themselves in order to elevate Jesus. What happens on each of these occasions is that the worshipper realises more fully or more really who Jesus really is. Well, at least as much as their minds can compute it. His power his awe, his goodness, his healing power, his mastery over the elements and plenty of other things. And they only have one response. It's, it's an automatic response, kind of how the human is wired to fall prostrate and lower oneself, make oneself lower than the greater one. And therefore, by lowering oneself to elevate him with worship, and verse 17 tells us, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But there it is again, but some doubted. So the group of disciples clearly fell into two categories. There were worshippers and there were doubters, or at least some who were hesitant. This is, of course, where Thomas comes to the fore. His story is only an associative reference here. It's John in his gospel account where you hear about what happened with Thomas, but let's refer to it because it's relevant, because the, this word of hesitate or doubt is there. This is what John records about Thomas. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So a completely separate scene. But the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There's a tremendous encouragement here, friends. Some people are quick to see something and consequently they're expressive in their response. It might be their culture or their personality or um, their, their quick ability to perceive something and respond. But they do it passionately and expressively. And in this case, some of the disciples, led by the women, respond decisively and full-heartedly and are on their knees and worshipping Jesus. But just the way we're wired, other people are more questioning and hesitant and even have outright doubt. These are the ones who will not be tricked easily and certainly don't, didn't come down in the last shower. Thomas shows us that this is okay. People like this. Thomas is your example and your guide. What Matthew 28.17 says also is that either way, all is fine and a part of God's diverse and beautiful creation. Whether you embrace Christ instinctively and impulsively and promptly or cautiously and doubtfully, it doesn't matter. What matters, and I think what Matthew is observing, is that you follow your necessary path towards Christ. Just find him. It doesn't matter whether you join the crowd quickly or you go your route. Just find him and worship him. Both are completely the legitimate routes and need to be encouraged. Friends, each of us naturally orient to one of those categories or somewhere on the spectrum in between. The early adopters get into it and they see who Jesus is and they worship him. For them, it's beautiful and it's easy and truth be told, with Jesus, they've made a wise choice, so great. But quick decisions aren't always wise, and there can also be pride or smugness from these folks, and even judgment of those who aren't quickly jumping on board. Again, Matthew 28:17 teaches us that the hesitant and doubtful are also included in his economy. They can test and question and explore away. Because Jesus said it himself in John 14, 6, when Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if Jesus is the truth, the way, the life, you can use all necessary tools on your investigative path. So you doubters and questioners, those of you who are slow to make a decision, probe away about Jesus. Test about Jesus. Discover, ask, 
And if you have to be as extreme as Thomas was, I'm not sure he really had that in mind, put your fingers into Jesus' wounds and see what he went through for you. It's real. Because your comprehensive method of investigation is necessary for you and therefore it has integrity. And when your type of mind and person makes up their mind, you're usually the most rock-solid type. So don't worry about the others. Those of us who jump on board quickly and have made up our minds, you do your research about Jesus. You will like what you find. Verse 18 then says, Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Immediately, Matthew takes our minds back to Jesus' other opportunity to seize all authority via the temptation in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus could have had all authority the cheat's way, which he rejected. And so now in chapter 28, we're finding he does have all authority. Let's remind ourselves of the temptation scene. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He was tired. He was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus quoted scripture. He answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The tempter came to Jesus and offered him the prestige and the authority and the reign, but without extraction of the full price that Jesus knew was required. Jesus would not compromise and take a shortcut because he knew that a full and complete demonstration of his sacrifice and resurrection was needed to put the devil in his proper place once and for all. Once Jesus' mission had been completed, there would never again be any room for anyone to compete with Jesus' rightful place as the vindicated one who reigns. And that route was not one that could be taken through a shortcut. Jesus' authority here in this scene is as the crucified and risen Lord. He has defeated tyranny and hopelessness and death and his authority is authority under which humanity has the possibility of flourishing. Jesus is victorious and his kingdom is now coming on earth as it is in heaven. The reign of the risen Messiah is beginning amongst his small band of women and disciples, some who are hesitant even in this scene and still have doubts. Now, just because Jesus is ruling the world doesn't mean that everything is perfect. Our claim as followers of the Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is not that everyone who follows him and we have it all together. Our claim is that he died, rose, 
and now rules. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's just that people don't yet fully realise it and know it. Tom Wright responds to this issue in a much better way. So I've borrowed from him and quoted a paragraph because it's much more helpful to read it than me try and bumble my way through getting this right. But he expresses this so well. He says, People get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world until they see what is in fact being said. The claim is that the claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was under the rule of death um, and of corruption and greed and every kind of wickedness and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. And how is he doing this? Here is the shock through us, his followers. The project goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. And here in this commissioning, Jesus leaves us with three essential tasks. To be sure, there are many other elements in the way that these three uh, commands are to be achieved, these three commissioning um, motives are to be achieved. There are a host of examples through Matthew's Gospel and, of course, also in the other three Gospels and the rest of the Bible. These three commands, though, are to be done with integrity and with truth and with faith and with justice and with righteousness and with humility and with acts of kindness and with mercy and compassion and with clarity and with urgency and with sound biblical theology and, of course, with love. But they are to be done as the mission and purpose of Jesus' disciples and those who claim to be his followers and disciples. Everything we do as a church community should be towards these priorities and instructions. Jesus gave three of them in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Make disciples of all nations, baptise people, and teach people to obey all that he has commanded. Make disciples of all nations. In chapter 4 in Matthew, we read of how Jesus himself started making disciples. Right back in chapter 4 last year, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus not only achieved all we've been hearing about these past two years, but he did it with a close group of 12 disciples and then a wider group of followers. He modelled ministry and he taught them his message on the road of life. Right at the start of, the minist of his ministry here in chapter 4, just after the temptation scene, Matthew observes how he started this process with Peter, 
and Andrew and then James and John and he called others to follow him along the way. Jesus certainly did draw crowds in his ministry. We read of the hubbub he created and how it disturbed the religious and political leaders who wanted peace and quiet. And we also know from the Bible of times Jesus drew such large crowds because he had to feed them, 4,000 and 5,000, and the writers don't include women and children, which must increase those numbers by a multitude. But while Jesus had compassion on crowds and certainly did draw them at times, he was not fooled by them. He knew that crowds could also be fickle and fleeting. What Jesus wanted was disciples, people committed to the long term, people who would stand firm, people who would learn and then do, people who would walk the talk and talk the walk, people who would live out the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And people who would not only do all of this, but who impart it into others as a way of of, of slowly but surely changing the world about them. And extraordinarily, that this would spread to the four corners of the globe. This was the pattern that created the movement of disciples who made disciples, who would expand across the city and then the state and the nation and around the world. This is how Luke summarised Jesus' instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, at the start of Acts, just before Jesus ascended. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Concentric rings, locally, further out, to the ends of the earth. That's the first instruction of our Lord. And the second one is that we would baptise people. Jesus' second instruction was clear. Baptism is not an optional extra. It has always been and will always be the primary spiritual method of entering a local church as well as the church universal. Baptism is our public means of identifying with Jesus. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 6. And if you want to read further into this, I encourage you to read the whole of Romans chapter 6. We don't have time now, but Paul says this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ raised you from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is through our baptism that we identify with Christ publicly and enter into new life. Jesus' clear instruction here is that his church baptises people to lead them through repentance, through the waters of cleansing that he offers so that they might rise to new life in him. Since the start of Jesus' earthly ministry when he was baptised himself by John, baptism has always been his mode of entry into his way and reign. Baptism, baptise people. And the third commissioning that Jesus gave his disciples and gave to us is to teach people to obey all that he has commanded. To be more specific, to teach everything that he's commanded. The gospel of Jesus generates a lifestyle quite different from the world. 
And you've got to teach that and you've got to explain that. It has a profound consequence on what we do with time and, and money and relationships. It affects our ethics and our morality. It calls us to love God and our neighbour as ourself. It calls us to greet the stranger and share hospitality and good news. And the task is alive and unfinished today. If Christians, if we gave as much energy to Christ's teaching as we do to learning so many other things, imagine the level of biblical knowledge and the fruit of his people. It would surely be vastly improved. These three instructions or commissioning words are to be our yardstick and measuring tool as we get on with it. And sadly, as we look around, there are so many distractions to this core commissioning. And then we're assured with Jesus' final words at the end of verse 20, the conclusion of Matthew. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. At the very end, at the last words in this gospel, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, in Jesus, the promise of the very first chapter in Matthew 1 has been fulfilled. Matthew, 20, Matthew 1, 23 says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here in these closing words, Jesus wants his followers to know that indeed he is with us and he will always be with us. And the only appropriate response that we can make to that assurance is to worship and get on with the great commandments and the great commission. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Loving God, as we conclude this gospel and yet as we face the world, we are so aware, Lord, of this great challenge that you have given to us. And yet we're so encouraged because you say and you promise that you are with us to the very end of the age. You are here now in this room right now because you promise where two or three gather you are in our midst it is incredible Lord as we look at this situation as we've studied Matthew and learned about it and learned about your life and ministry we thank you so much for these words the way they move us to follow and to worship and to be devoted to you but they don't leave us there. They move us into the world to greet our neighbour, to care for our friend, to pray for someone, to look out, to feed the poor, to clothe the, those who, who need clothes, to get involved in care in the local community, all with the purpose of making disciples and baptising and teaching to obey. Lord, there is so much in our world and we hear so many messages that discourage us that show us that the church is not doing so well or that society is going in certain directions help us be Lord 
people who every day understand that regardless of those things, you are with us always to the end of the age. And nothing can overcome that. You are with us. So let us go, Lord, as worshippers, boldly, courageously, humbly and honestly into the world to proclaim the word of Jesus and do your works. We pray. Amen.